This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 343 Podcast. Today, Joey Cassio joins me to break down another game. And you might be wondering, what game are we going to break down? There's been no U.S. Men's National Team games. There's been no youth national teams uh, playing right now. So what could we possibly break down? Well, we decided that we want to also start breaking down some of the best games in the world. And over the weekend, Atletico Madrid and FC Barcelona faced off in La Liga. And there are so many things to talk about from that game and from many, many games that happen around the world every week that we can be learning from. One thing that I am actually very passionate about is trying to help people see and talk about the game differently, more than just at a casual fan level, more than just a soccer parent level, more than even just a a, a coaching level too, but just seeing and, and, and thinking about the game differently. And this game between Atletico Madrid and Barcelona provided plenty of excellent examples nearly every player on the field uh, was able to execute not only just the basics, the fundamentals over and over and over again, but they were able to execute all of the details that were necessary in order to play a game at such a high level. And recently me and Joey, we broke down the Cuba versus U S men's national team game. And and one of the, the takeaways from that game is that, in that game, we should have been able to see the the U.S. men's national team's clear identity because we were playing such an inferior opponent. And then you contrast that with this game that we're about to break down where you have two high, 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 high-level teams and you were still able to see their clear identity, which is quite amazing. So I hope you enjoy this episode with me and Joey and our chat about this game. And if you want to continue learning from 343, you can always head to 343coaching.com. That's where we have over 200 written articles. We have over 200 podcast episodes. We offer a free seven-week coaching course that can introduce you to 343 in the way that we do things. And that is all a primer for our premium coaching education course, which is a deep, deep, deep dive into the 343 methodology the proven methods that Brian Kleiben has used to produce players like Ulianes, Efra Alvarez, Alex Mendez, Kobe Hernandez Foster. You can see exactly how those players were developed and you can learn those same methods and start using those with your teams and with your players today. All of it is available at 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right, please enjoy this episode of the 343 podcast with my good friend, Joey Cassio. Well, we're back and we're going to do something a little bit different. We've never done this before. We are going to break down a La Liga game. We're going to break down in one of the biggest games of uh, the Spanish season of the Spanish in the Spanish league, so it, it, I almost said Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid uh, versus Barcelona. So I think people would anticipate us doing something, you know, more along the lines of 
Real Madrid versus Barcelona, but uh, this game to me is as interesting or maybe even more interesting than uh, than El Clasico and for a number of different reasons. But Atleti and, and Barca played over the weekend and there were a ton of just different examples of excellent football uh, on both sides. Both both teams played a very contrasting style at times and then they actually played very similar at different times throughout the match. Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, some of the some of the differences, some of the similarities, some of the highlights, some of the lowlights, and, and to kind of just dissect the game from from top to bottom. Um, but Joey, welcome back, and 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 maybe you can start off with just some of your general thoughts about about what you saw over the weekend in this game. Yeah, first it was an incredible game of football. Both teams performed at a very high level. <clears throat> Obviously, contrasting styles, uh, Atleti and Simeone, known for very, very good uh, defensive work, while Barcelona, known for very good attacking football, keeping possession of the ball. Uh, so contrasting styles. And while the scoreline was only 1-0 uh, throughout, very intense game and a lot of fun to watch. What were what were some of the initial things that stood out to you, or or maybe I should ask the question like this: What do you what do you look for right away when you sit down and you watch a game, especially a game like this? What are, what are you trying to pick out right away? Uh, I like to look at the how they're performing as a group. So, if I'm looking, if I was looking at Letty, one of the first things I noticed, which is usually how they play against Barcelona, very compact when Barcelona has the ball. Uh, like four, they have two lines of four, the back line and then midfield line, very, very close together. The spaces in between the defenders are very small. And then the two forwards up top, which were Morata and, and Jao Felix, uh, you know, they, they would drop deep as well and be in front of Barcelona's back line as they were circulating the ball around. So Atleti's defensive shape and then how how Barcelona were setting up to try to to try to probe and break that down. That was what I was looking at in the beginning. And then a lot of it comes down to what the individual players uh, offer in, the, in their you know own abilities to be able to to break that. You know the way that Atleti was set up. So yeah, that, that's what I usually look at the the collective group performance. And and what are some of the things you you mentioned that Atleti set up in the, you know the two banks of four? Um, did you did you notice anything about how they changed or or did they change a formation as they as they moved from defending in that four four two to then attacking? Yeah, they they would try to go quickly. Barcelona under Valverde, you know, they're not. It, it's not like the old Barcelona where. Old Barcelona, it would be press, pressing all over the field. It didn't really matter where they were. They would immediately try to apply pressure on the ball and, and in numbers. Now, under Valverde, like, yeah, Letty would get into Barcelona's half and they would drop deep, trying to play similar to Atletico Madrid, get the, get the uh, back line close together, compact. Uh, Barcelona played with a midfield three, but you'd, you'd often see Griezmann drop in and, and provide maybe a fourth player in the midfield line to help defend. But yeah, when, when Atleti would win the ball, they would try to quickly, you know, get forward using the two forwards. And then they, you know, you, you'd see um, who was on the right. 
You're talking about like right, see, right, right, right defense or? No, you'd see like uh, Angel Correa get forward yeah. on, on the right to provide some width. And then even uh, Trippier and Saul getting uh, forward as well. Koke on the left. So they would use their, their width once they won the ball and they try to, you know, get services into the box. And uh, But yeah, once they once Antletti would win the ball, it was quickly trying to get forward before Barcelona could, could get up, uh, could get set up defensively. One of the things I noticed was depending on where uh, Atletico was, was, or where they would win the ball kind of determined how or what would happen next. So if they won the ball like near midfield or in the attacking, in their attacking half, it was like full speed. Like, you know, we were counterattacking and we're going right now. And there was no look to, you know, play back or reset or anything like that. But if they won the ball in the defensive half or, you know, even in, the, in their defensive third, they actually did attempt to, you know, settle the game down and, and, you know, play back to the goalkeeper and reset. And, and like you mentioned, you know, Barca would, in those moments would drop off. And in, I think in the like early stages, maybe like the fifth or sixth minute, um, that's, ex- I mean, that's exactly what happened. Barca tried to try to put a ball over the top and it went to, it went to the keeper Atletico set up, you know, perfectly to build out of the back. I think that went from left center back to right center back. And then Trippier started to push way high up the line, like you just mentioned. And one of their one of their midfielders kind of just sunk in to that gap between the center back and Trippier because he had pushed himself all the way into the attacking half at this point. And he received it. Trippier was higher up the field. They played Trippier. And the I think who's the outside back for Barca? Furpo? Yeah. Uh, you know, he had to make a decision at that point. Do I go press the guy with the ball because he's got like 20 yards of space in front of him? Or do I chill and I stay home and I and I stay with Correa? And he decided to go and, and press Trippier. And, and right away, when, once once Furpo made those two steps towards Trippier, Correa changed his, his uh, body language and went full sprint down the line, passed down the line, and ended up being a corner. Um, or, or Atletico ended up getting a corner out of it. But, you know, very calm, composed, built out of the back. And as soon as they got in the attacking half, it was on. Um, which I, I felt, you know, was was pretty interesting because every time they got the ball in their defensive third, they were smart enough to know, hey, this isn't, you know, the right time to counter. But anytime they won it near midfield, it was full speed ahead. So that was an observation yeah. I had. Yeah, and it, it comparing it to, you know, we we spent a lot of time talking about the U.S. national team and their ability to build out of the back, regardless of the tactics so you see in this game, Atleti known for defending and then counterattack, and then Barca known for you know build up play, uh, getting into the opponent's half and picking passes to break them down. Both teams can build out of the back very well. They understand how to do it. They know where to position themselves. And so looking at the national team, it's like, yeah, no matter, no matter what our identity is, we have to be able to build out of the back. You know, all teams in Europe, for the most part, in the first divisions, they are able to build out of the back competently to, to some degree. You know, you have to be able to do it. Um, but yeah, At- Atleti did very good to recognize when it was on to go forward or just chill, circulate the ball around. But you could tell that's what they were looking for. As soon as they won the ball, they were... They were looking, okay, is it on to go forward? And if it was, they would go. And if it wasn't, just keep the ball and, and try to find a different moment to go forward. But Atleti, their their commitment to defending is unbelievable. You know, you, you can see uh, 
the body language of the players, the intensity of the players, like everybody knows in that team that we are all giving everything to make sure that we execute the defensive tactics. And it made it very difficult for, for Barcelona to break it down. And one of the things that is very easy to pick out are the moments of like expansion and contraction. So as soon as the ball is turned over, there's this immediate contraction of around, you know, maybe where the ball is, but just as a, as a collective group, you know, they all need to, you know, shrink and, and, and become like one tight unit. And it's on, it's on full display every time that there's a turnover. And you, if you just watch that moment of transition with Atletico throughout the entire game, it's, it, there's, there's never a moment through the entire game where they don't, where, where it's like not completely obvious that every player is switched on in those moments, because that is their identity and every every player on the field and on the bench and and we'll get to Simeone in a little bit but like everybody is committed to that and and they don't take they don't take a single playoff from from executing that identity which i think is very 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 special but yeah that for me that's one of the most beautiful things man to see in a in a game of football is the transition whether it be from defense to attack or attack to defense it takes so much concentration and the level of Atleti and how they were doing it from attack to defense, it it's unbelievable, man. And you, you comparing that to American players, we don't we don't see it. I mean, we see it a little bit, but but at this level, we're not even close. The transition speed from both sides of the ball, we the level we saw in this game, it's very very rare to see that in American soccer. And it should be pointed out too that this is you know two of the highest level teams there you know every player on the field is is like a master of their position and and both teams are still able to execute uh you know technically and tactically which is insane like to do to do that at this level is insane and we're not talking about um you know usa versus cuba where you know that that's when we talk about a game like that and and uh, you know, the U.S. should be executing everything perfectly, firing on all cylinders throughout the entire 90 minutes because they're playing a, such an inferior opponent. But then you take this game, for example, and, you know, it's it's two high, 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 high-level teams, and they are still able to execute all these things. That's a humongous difference between um any you know U.S. men's national team game in in recent times and maybe in forever, um, but especially you know the games that we see at Major League Soccer level, which to me Major League Soccer games still tend to look a lot like pickup soccer, just kind of just like back and forth, kind of kicking it around. It, you know the ball's over on one side of the field, the other players aren't really engaged. Like that that is still how a lot of it is in my mind. But this game, completely different level. Yeah, and I think that that's why, you know, you'll you'll see a lot of you'll see and hear a lot of people say that MLS games are difficult to watch, and I think this is an example in this game at Leti Barca. Both teams very clear the tactical identities and what they're trying to do. Uh, whereas if you watch a game in MLS, it's very difficult to see what the what the plan is from each team, and I think that's one of the the more intriguing things of watching a, a game of football is what is each team trying to do? Yeah. And in, in a game like this, you can, you can see it. And if you, if you need something to watch for, 
you can watch for that expansion contraction or expansion and shrinking from Atletico. Like that is, it's very clear when the ball is in transition. It's very easy to see those types of things. So if you're if you're not if you're not used to looking for something like that, then you know, and, and or you're looking for a place to maybe start with analyzing a game differently, or or going from you know just watching a game casually to to really analyzing a game, you can start with something like that because it's it's very easy to see that part of Atletico's identity. And if you flip that around and you try to you know do that in a major league soccer game, and you try to look at those moments. F- more often than not, you're not going to be able to find anything uh, substantial in like those transition moments. You're not going to be able to find anything, you know, that clear and well executed. It's just kind of random in, in major league soccer. Like if you watch the final, who was it this year? Seattle, Toronto, it was just chaos ball the entire time. And yeah. So if you're looking for something to, to look for, that's, you know, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, man. I, I bet he's so good. He, you could kind of see what they were trying to do. They were, you know, their two banks of four were taking away the center of the field from Barcelona. So Barcelona would try to come into the spaces between uh, the midfield and the back line, but they really couldn't do anything. So they were forced to circulate the ball out wide. And you'd see Messi get on the ball. And immediately once Messi got on the ball, uh, Atleti would send two, three, sometimes even four players to surround him so that he couldn't do any damage. And they would force him to, um, usually he would just choose to just keep the ball and and reset it, you know, realizing like, okay, there's nothing here. Uh, And even on the side of Griezmann, same thing, they'd get it out wide to him and they'd quickly have two or three players around him to prevent him from, you know, getting in behind their back line. Uh, so they were taking away the middle of the field, forcing Barcelona to go out wide. And in the first half, especially, they really Barcelona couldn't really do much at all. Uh, they did end up getting a few chances, but it was very good in that first half from Atletico Madrid. And in, in the first half, and I know you you pointed this out before we started recording that um, you you wanted to discuss Atletico's chances in the first half and the, and the chances that they created because. Uh, their their defensive positioning, their defensive, um, their yeah, just their their shape and, and their control defensively actually created chances for them. Ironically, so Barca, you know, the team that's supposed to be the attacking powerhouse, um, you know, known for their possession and whatnot, and you know, Messi, uh, Suarez, and Griezmann up top, they they were kind of ineffective in the in throughout the first half. And it was actually Atletico that had more of the chances. So what did what did you notice in regards to that? Well, while Atletico's shape uh, was to get those banks of four, that was more so in their own half. When Barcelona was in their half, Atletico were very smart to identify when to press. Um, you know, they, 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 they would show respect to Barcelona when Barcelona... Um, were in control of the ball. They had good shape. They they knew that Barcelona could maybe pick out a few options. That's when Atletico would drop off and let them have the ball and get set up and not let them, you know, break down their lines of four. But when Barcelona had the ball in their half and it it wasn't clear that they had good shape and the spacing to be able to build out of the bag, Atletico would press and they were forcing them into uh, into mistakes. And I think under Valverde, this is one of the things that maybe Barcelona aren't as good at 
as in years past uh, under different managers is their ability to build out of the back very, very well. Um, they can struggle at times. And so, yeah, Atletico were, were pressing in Barcelona's half and forcing mistakes and then picking up the ball close to Barcelona's goal and immediately trying to pounce and, and create something on goal. So, yeah, just, just the three moments that stood out was uh, Hermoso had the ball, I think, just inside the 18-yard box. I think it came from a mistake, Barcelona trying to build out. Atleti with it. Hermoso takes a shot. It deflects off of uh, Junior Firpo off the far post. Barcelona lucky lucky not to concede. Um, the second moment was a cross from Jao Felix over the head of Rakitic to Hermoso. Has a one-on-one with Ter Stegen. Ter Stegen gets big and is somehow able to to get the ball out of the goal mouth and wide. And then uh, the corner kick from from Trippier. I think this is one of the reasons why Atleti uh, went after Trippier is he's an unbelievable crosser of the ball from, from the right-hand side. So Trippier takes the corner. Morata rises above his defender, heads it straight into the ground, and Ter Stegen is able to palm it away. Very, very difficult for Ter Stegen, especially because the, the conditions were wet. The grass was very wet, so the ball was flying off the grass. Uh, yeah, those are the three moments where, yeah, Atleti could have easily been up in the first half and went into the halftime break with, with a lead. Uh, Barcelona, there was one moment that's, that stood out. You know, Pique hit the crossbar. Uh, it was from a corner kick, similar to Morata. He rose above his defender. Uh, I think he headed in it into the ground as well, and it flew up and, and off the crossbar. So, uh, for me, I thought Atleti were better in the in the first half than Barcelona. I thought that they uh, they could have had a couple goals going into the break, which definitely would have changed the game. But nil nil going into the break, and things are a little bit different in the second half. I like that you mentioned the weather because people like you know in, in American soccer they tend to use like the CONCACAF region and the weather and the field shape and, and, and whatnot as like excuses for how the, the men's national team will play. But this game was, you know, soaking wet and the players were obviously freezing cold. You can see the, you can see the, their breath is, uh, you know, every time they, they take a breath, you know, smoke looks like it's coming out of their mouth. So, you know, freezing cold, wet, raining the entire game, but that didn't, that didn't impact either team or how, how they wanted to play clear, clear identities from both teams from start to finish, regardless of the weather. So uh, I think that's just really, really, really important to, to point out. Um, yeah. So you kind of, you kind of walked us through and got us to halftime. Um, second half started and, and for, for, you know, a number of different reasons, the second half was, was kind of like a different game at, at, at points. So what were your uh, general thoughts or observations about the second half? In the second half, I think Barcelona realized that, yeah, if, if they would win the ball back from Atleti and they would take their time building up, then it was going to be very difficult to break Atleti down. I think they realized that, okay, once we win the ball, we have to try to attack Atleti quickly before they can transition into their defensive shape. Because once they got into their defensive shape, we weren't going to do anything really. So you started to see that... Uh, yeah, they, they'd win the ball and they would, they'd be aware of, okay, it's on to go forward, let's go. Or 
if it was just time to just keep the ball, circulate the ball. So there were a lot of moments in the second half where Barcelona would start their attack right away. And it was, uh, it was changing, you know, the amount of chances that they were getting on goal. They were able to get closer to Atleti's goal, create better chances. Uh, it was maybe causing some fatigue from, from Atleti, all that running. Uh, so yeah, Barcelona started to get more control in the second half. Um, that was the the thing that stood out to me was just Barcelona's maybe a slight change in how they would attack, a little more urgency to get forward. It it really opened the game up, and and like you mentioned, you know, part of Atletico's plan is to be able to to get into those two blocks of four defensively, and if they're not able to do that, and they're constantly you know moving from. Um, you know, or, or it, it, the game became kind of just like a game of transitions. I know people have heard that before, but, um, you know, there, there weren't as many, you know, long stretches of Atletico sitting in, in those two banks of four. Um, they, they didn't, uh, you know, Barca, like you mentioned, would kind of go full speed ahead and then Atletico would win it and then they would do their thing, which is, yeah, go full speed ahead. So that I really do think, like you, like you said too, um, yeah, tired them out because that's exactly what happened on the uh, on Barca's goal. Eventually, um, Atletico was so stretched out that and probably so exhausted that they had no choice that to you know that they had no way to stop it at that point. But um, you, you maybe want to describe uh, Barca's goal? Yeah, no, exactly that. Uh, Atleti lose the ball; they're a little stretched out. Messi, Messi gets the ball on the right. And I mean, Messi. Messi's a killer, man. He, he, if you don't get him surrounded by three or four players, he's he's going to do some damage. And it was exactly that. I think I want to say it was the left back, and then Thomas Partey was was close to him. So the two of them were trying to defend Messi, uh, but they let him cut inside, and then Suarez was right there, just in front of the back line, um, and. And I believe that Messi knows exactly what he's doing. He he plays Suarez. He could have kept dribbling, but he plays Suarez to get the center backs to collapse onto Suarez. And then Suarez knows this. Messi continues his run around Suarez. Suarez just lays it off. So now now the center backs are out of Messi's way to be able to shoot. Or or maybe they're just in the vision of the goalkeeper. So Messi can use the defender to shield uh to shield the view of, of the goalkeeper so he can shoot into the far post before Oblak can react and save the ball. So, yeah, perfectly executed. Atleti's a little stretched. They don't they don't have that same compactness around um, the midfield areas as they did in the first half, and Messi makes them pay. Yeah, and it was a, it was a four-pass counterattack that started in Barca's penalty area. And the fifth, like the fifth strike of the ball, was Messi's shot and and in the back of the net. Um, I kind of want to re- rewind it and do what I did for the Jackson Ewell pass that I kind of broke down right before Jordan Morris got one of his goals against Cuba. Because I, I watched that, I watched the goal like I don't know five or six times maybe, and there's some very interesting stuff that happens in the lead up to the, to the goal. And the first one being when Atletico lost that ball. So it was actually a cross, um, that, that I think it was, uh, Sergio Roberto just kind of just ended up intercepting it. And as, as the balls, you know, 
traveling in the air. Frankie de Jong is an incredibly smart player. He realizes it's no chance Atletico is going to recover that ball. It's going to Sergio Roberto. So now as the ball's mid-flight, uh, Frankie de Jong is already planning the counterattack. And you can see him check his shoulder as the ball is mid-flight. He knows it's going to his teammate. Okay, it's probably going to come to me next. Okay, let me plan two, three more moves of what's going to happen next after this. So he, as the ball's in flight, he checks his shoulder. Of course, Sergio Roberto just nods the ball down to him with his head. So he's turning and he's and he's starting to dribble up the field. And he's looking the entire time as he's dribbling. It looks like he's looking to the left side of the field, to Griezmann, to... Uh, I forget what other player was over on that side. And Messi is doing what Messi does best, which is deceiving everybody on the field. Messi, uh, a lot of people probably don't understand this, you know, why he stands around the way that he stands around, but he gets defenders to check out and or to not worry about him almost. And so Messi is just kind of standing there at midfield. And then the defender, I can't remember who, who was the closest one. I think you, you named him. But, um, you know, when he sees Messi's just standing there, okay, he makes a decision. Do I retreat now and, and stay with my line of four? Or do do I stay with Messi? And so the defender retreated. And immediately when Me- when Messi recognizes that, he throws both his hands up in the air. He's like, give me the fucking ball. Like, now I'm the guy. And Frankie recognizes it, give Messi the ball, or gives Messi the ball. And then everything that you explained after that is what happened. But, man, the if, if you watch... The th- probably like the the 15 seconds before Messi gets the ball, it it there's a lot of shit that happens there from both sides of, of the uh, on both sides of the ball defensively and offensively. It's it's crazy the level that these guys are operating at. Like you know three four moves ahead, which is so yeah. nuts. There there there's there's small tweak in the tactics for Barcelona once they would win the ball. So to know if you're going to go forward right away. You have to be aware of what's going on while you're defending. So while you're defending, you have to be looking around, seeing where everybody's positioned so that if you do win possession of the ball, you know right away whether the, the counterattack is on to go forward. If you're just not thinking about that, only focusing on the defensive part, not planning ahead, you win the ball, like it, it, it's going to be too slow. You know, Atleti are too good and they'll be able to transition and get into their shape before, you know, Barcelona even knows where to go with the ball going forward. So, yeah, constantly thinking ahead, constantly looking around, seeing where everybody's at and thinking not just one thing at a time, whether it's defense or attack. It's while defending, you're thinking about potential attacks. While attacking, you're thinking about potentially having to defend. And that that's a big difference. And I think here in American soccer, I think that that lacks quite a bit. And yeah, going a little bit further in comparison to the national team, you know, we've talked about Burhalter's identity being possession-based. So you see Barcelona, you know, they realized that they needed to make small tweaks going into the second half. But the identity doesn't change. The, the principles of play don't change. It's just a small tweak in how they're going to execute those those principles it's not like oh okay this isn't working so let's just launch the ball forward and hope that we get something out of it it's no they they changed uh you know to going forward a little bit quicker just trying to be aware of that uh in in the in the lead up to those moments and they executed well they ended up scoring the goal and winning the match yeah and and what you mentioned right there too, you know, like, like just a small tweak and the identity is still there. 
that's very rare and, and and you don't see that from from you know very many teams outside of you know the top 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 high 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 level teams for the most part if you watch uh, a premier league game and you're watching you know two teams from the bottom half of the table um where you're, where your beloved manchester united are right now um <laughs> uh, but if, if you watch two, if you watch two of those teams play, you know the last five minutes of the game. If it's a close game, that it's just you know everything is abandoned, and you know it's just it's just kickball at that point. And that is still how Major League Soccer is for the most part. Um, you know, across uh, across the board, there's there's a lot of those moments where it's just launch fest um, throughout the entire game. But specifically, you know, when something's not working, then it becomes just chaos, and. You don't see you don't see people abandon their identity uh, like that. You know, if they're a top 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 team, Manchester City, Liverpool, um, Barca, Atletico, PSG, those teams don't abandon their identities. Um, they they just make tweaks, like you mentioned, and yeah, everything pretty much stays the same. Like pe- people are still you know able and. and and display the ability to receive it across their body to you know make simple passes on the ground to to the correct area and one of the things we highlighted last game was Tim Reams' just you know inability to play Brad Guzan a, a you know correct pass and you know those 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 basic fundamentals are still executed um, minus the minus the small tweaks that that people make so yeah that's a good it's another good point Joey um yeah, so the the game itself, I, I think if you if you look and you decide to to watch with more of like a an eye for the small details, this game is is loaded with so many things that people can learn, and um, it, I'm sure a lot of people um, will just watch the game as a fan, and which is you know rightfully so. That's that's how you should that's how you should enjoy a game is you know watch it as a fan. But when you go back, and if you want to, if you want to like rewind the tape and and hit the pause button a bunch of times, there's so many different moments where you can see just clearly the players losing their man. You can see, you know, the effort and the intent behind getting in the correct positions to to build out of the back. One of the things that I think you highlighted consistently over the last few episodes was you know, body shape and, you know, Tim, Tim Reams inability to, to get himself in the correct body shape or John Brooks inability to get himself in the correct body shape to even just build out of the back. And, you know, they, they receive the ball facing the sideline or facing their fucking goalkeeper or something like that. But if you watch this game, you know, plenty of examples of, of them working, putting in the extra effort to get their, their body shape correct in order to receive the ball. And, and now they're in a good, a, a good spot to, to then play the ball forward or, or maintain possession or, all kinds of other things. There was plenty of examples of breaking lines passes. PK had three breaking lines passes in the first five minutes of the game. And that's supposed to be Burhalter's identity for the U S men's national team. And we hardly ever saw it throughout the entire year. And here's PK just, man, no problem. Like let's play 40 yard balls on the ground to our center forward through, uh, one of the best defensive units on the planet. Yeah, no problem. Three and five minutes. It's just, it's just crazy, dude. Like there's so many of those things. And, and, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, like like I like I told you before, w- one of the things that I'm becoming more and more passionate about is getting people um, or helping people see these little details, and, and also just changing the way we we watch or changing the way we talk about the game. 
And I think that those two things are super important to me. So that's why I kind of like doing these, these breakdown episodes and, and talking about these types of things. And hopefully I get better at, and, and, and we get better at pointing out some of these details, but I think it's important for people to start watching for things like this at the highest levels so that they, that way they can compare that to the men's national team. When we hear somebody like Stu Holden or Tim Howard or, or Alexi Lawless or Twelman or whatever, say whatever they're saying about these guys. Right. But you know, we can, we can have like a standard, a gold standard to hold them to. So I think that's, that's very important for, for people. And I hope that that's what they take away from, from an episode like this. Yeah, yeah man. Always, always good to learn. Yep. Um, and these types of games provide an excellent opportunity to learn so much about, about the game. Yep. Yep. And I know a lot, a lot of people that are listening to this are, I, I don't want to say casual fans cause that's kind of like demeaning, but you know, there's a lot of parents that listen to this podcast. There's a lot of people that didn't grow up playing soccer that listen to this podcast that maybe they have a kid that plays now and they're, they're more interested in, in, in learning and educating themselves with, which I think is very, very important. Um, so I, I hope that there are some takeaways for, for, for people, um, when they listen to you kind of break down, you know, a counterattack or talk about the, the two banks of four, like these are things that you can look for in youth games too, to determine, Hey, you know, is, is there a tactical plan? Is, is there an identity for this team? Is there, is this coach executing, his game, his actual game plan. Is there a game plan? Uh, and and these are all things that you know you can learn by watching the high, high, high level games, listening to, to to guys like you and I talk about the games, and then you're armed with all kinds of of information to take into your own environment. Whether that's you know whether you're coaching or or you're a parent or or something like that. I think that that's that's very valuable to to be armed with with you know the details uh, of of these situations. So yeah, that's it, just, it's something I think it, that people take, should take away. It takes, it's taken me years, man, yep. to, to view a game as I do now. Like I, when I was a player in my early years of coaching, I would just fixate on the ball or probably within five to 10 yards around the ball and yep. not look beyond that. But watching many, many games over the years, I more so don't really look at that anymore. And uh, I watch collective movements and to see what the the collective idea is. But yeah, it's to do that, man. It's taken me it's taken me years. But then now doing watching these types of games, I think it's easier to go back. And if you work in a youth environment or you work with, uh, or if you have a, a youth player, you know your your kid's a youth player, it, it makes it much easier to identify these types of things after watching high level games you're able to identify those moments in in youth environments and youth games i'll I'll give i'll give people another example of what they can watch for right away so that if you want to go watch a game right now or if you have your kids game coming up this weekend or if you're a coach and you're analyzing a game um you know here here's something that you can take away and i mentioned the expansion contraction thing earlier that's that's one thing you can watch for in this game but in any game you can simply watch for players receiving it across their body. And, and specifically in this game, you can watch long stretches, 10, 10 plus uh, pass sequences where every single player receives it across their body. And then you can kind of throughout that passing sequence, you can see why the next pass was enabled because of the way that they received the ball. And if they didn't receive it across their body, it was probably a one touch pass then 
uh, you know, back back to where it came from or out the other way because there was no other option. So if it's a, if they're taking two touches, they're for sure receiving it across their body 95% of the time, maybe even higher, 99% of the time. And, and that's what enables these 10 pass sequences, 15 pass sequences that Barcelona put together, that Atletico put together, that Manchester City put together, that Liverpool put together. So if you if you want to watch for something, look for those long sequences and count how many times out of that 15 pass sequence, the players received it across their body. And I guarantee it's going to be somewhere, you know, in the high 90 percentages. And, and that's something, you know, very easy that, that people can can take away and, and start and start evaluating. And if you want to look at men's nat- the U.S. men's national team, you can do that as well for the U.S. men's national team and see how many players are receiving it across their body, you know, how, how or why that's impacting the next passes that they're going to make. Things like that are, are very, very important details, but that's, you know, that's a very easy one that people can start watching for right now. Sorry, I'm soapboxing today. No, you're right, you're right. Man. You're right. It, it, it's, it's almost impossible to see everything that goes on within a game, you know? Like, there's the individual details, and then there's the collective group details. Very difficult to see it all. Yep. Yep. And, it, and it, it, it's going to come in stages for a lot of people, too. Um, it is it, it is hard. Um, there, there's two things that I definitely want to talk about just before, before we end the call, because I feel like these are two important things that we never get a dose of in American soccer. So... Um, you you paid special attention to Simeone's behavior, so the Atletico coached it, his behavior on the sideline. So that's very important for 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 fans, for players, for coaches, for parents to understand. You know the difference between Simeone and Bruce Arena, and and the behavior on the sideline. So what what are some of the observations that you had or have you know over over history of uh, of Diego Simeone? No, he, it's like he plays the match with the team from the sideline. You know, he's he's pacing back and forth. He's shouting instruction, his his body language. Like, he is fully locked into the game. Uh, he, he wishes he was out there fighting with the team. And, and you can see it's like the players on the field, um, they are a reflection of Simeone and his, his intensity. Uh, you see it in the way that they defend. Uh, and... I think it's I think it's awesome. I think it's so cool to see that, and it's part of the game. But unfortunately, here in the United States, the behavior that Simeone exudes from the sideline is is frowned upon here. You know, we're here. It's more like, hey, the coach is just supposed to sit there and kind of let the players do do what what they feel they should do. And if they make a mistake, then you go back into training the next week and you work on it. Where Simeone, working with top, top-level professionals, one of the best clubs in the world, every single pass, every single uh, moment of defending, he's with his team on the sideline, locked in, shouting instruction, jumping up and down, all of it. And that's just frowned upon here. And it's it's really too bad because it's part of the game and it's it's another beautiful part of why I love football. The, the the coach the the conductor yeah people typically call that joystick coaching or if they're not if they're not talking specifically about you know the coach kind of pulling the strings from the sideline the other side of it would be just just his overall just behavior like his temperament 
is unacceptable as well. Just, you know, he's yelling, he's screaming at the players, at the opponents, at the referees, everybody. And, and that just that alone is, is not acceptable, but he is involved in every single touch of the ball. It's it, like you, like you said, he's, it's almost like he's on the field with his guys. And so th- those two things are just not welcome here in the United States. And if a coach is doing that, like in a youth game, he would be outcasted, uh, you know, by, by the other coaches, by the referees would be trying to calm him down, things like that. It's just, yeah, it, it is uh, very unfortunate. So, um, I think if, if people want a dose of, of what that high level stuff looks like, again, Simeone is a, a great person to watch. And if you, you're kidding yourself, if you don't think the other top level coaches are doing, uh, doing things on a similar level, Jurgen Klopp, uh, Pep, um, I mean, Valverde, he's not a great example. He's very, very quiet, but you know, he's still out there, you know, talking and, and, and giving instructions, but you know, the top, top, top level guys, yeah, they're they're not sitting on the bench quietly taking notes. I can tell you that. They're, yeah, they're, they're, no, we, they're not. In the sense of demonstrating passion, we need more of that type of coach, like Simeone, here in America. Because if you go out to the the youth fields, and I'm talking the highest levels of the youth game here, the DA level, there is absolutely no passion on the field, from the players, from the sideline, nothing. It, it seriously lacks. And you look at Simeone demonstrate his passion. You see it come through in his players. We we seriously need that. So it's too bad. Hopefully in this in this area it becomes more acceptable so that we do get more coaches willing willing to do that kind of stuff on the sideline, which I think will will make the players better in the long run. It'll help them develop. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that we miss out on is any type of um, political activity uh, with with our sports here in, in the United States. Any type of political activity at a, at a sporting event is like is frowned upon. Whether we're talking about NBA or you know NFL, we we, we got a dose of it a few years ago with the NFL players taking a knee. You know that was probably like the most the, the most politically charged thing that has ever uh, happened in in modern American sports, right? Um, and and we forget with football, global football, that it's very, very politically motivated uh, at every single level, every single day. And, and Barca did something in this game that you know would never, would never, ever, ever happen in in, in the United States. Um, maybe uh, maybe you can kind of explain what happened or what I, what I'm kind of hinting at. Yeah, I, I don't know the details of it all but you, i think it's well known that there's political protests going on in, in catalonia and um the the classical was was rescheduled because of the political protests uh and so yeah barcelona going into madrid to face atletico uh, it, it was interesting that they decided to uh launch and introduce their new catalonia themed kit for the game uh going into the capital of spain uh, but yeah it, it it really is too bad you know we're on the outside obviously we don't get a flavor for what's going on within within spain uh as barcelona comes into madrid for this game we we don't really get a feel for that and yeah we don't we don't see it here in our in our soccer in america um 
the the franchises just want to appeal to everybody uh, instead of uh, identifying to a, a certain subset of the of the community and represent them hardcore. Uh, we, we, we don't get a feel for that, man. And, and it's too bad. And that's another, that's another part of football in this country that I think leads to sort of a lack of passion, uh, in the pro game, uh, watching, watching the game, Barcelona at Levy on, on TV, you know, we can only sort of view, uh, the environment in the stands and, and hear the reaction of, of the fans, uh, and get a feel for it that way. It, and even then, it's far more intense than than what we get to experience here in America. But yeah, being there, I'm sure it's completely different. And having an understanding and context for exactly uh, what the political differences are between the two clubs and just everything surrounding everything going on in, in Spain in terms of uh, Catalonia wanting to break off from from Spain and be independent. So it... It's too bad we don't get a flavor for that here uh, in the U.S. I'll share. I'll share one quick story, and then uh, and then we can wrap this up. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to El Clasico in in Spain, in Barcelona. It was my first time there. I had been there already for maybe just like two or three days, and uh, yeah. So me and and the guy that I went with, Cameron Baker. We we walk to the to the stadium and and we're, we're there you know two hours before the game I forget how we you know, we had met somebody at um, La Masia that morning when we were there observing games and, and training sessions that invited us to meet with him and his friends before um, before the game and so we go and meet them in this park whatever there's you know hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets uh, all the streets are, are are shut down around the stadium and. And so we're out there and it's all Barcelona fans in this one particular park or right outside the stadium. Everybody's cheering and waving flags and drinking beers and, and it's all crazy. And, and there's the, the Catalonia flags and the Barca flags. And, and then all of a sudden, three guys in Real Madrid jerseys walk into like the center of this park area. And you walk, they walk like right in front of this group of, of like ultras. And the guys that I was with, I, the guy, I remember the guy that I was standing next to, who I, I'm actually, uh, I'm still good friends with to this day. Um, I just met him, you know, 30 minutes before. Um, he he leans over to me and he says, "Okay, there's there, there's either two things that are going to happen at this moment, and these 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 three guys that walk through uh, in their Real Madrid jerseys. He's like, uh, <laughs> this is what he said to me: they're either going to blow all of us up, or they're going to get the shit kicked out of them. And so the, so so the guys they walk through and they're standing there. They start just the three guys. They start kind of just staring around at everybody and, and chanting. And everybody, meanwhile, from the Barca fans went silent." Like we didn't know what was going to happen next. And then all of a sudden one of the ultras holding a flag just grabs his flag and hits one of the guys over the shoulders with it. And then they just get their asses beat and ran out of the park. It was so, 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 so crazy. I've never been in an environment like that before. And I'm not encouraging that by any means. Um, I, I've just, I'm sharing the story because I've never, I've never been a part of anything that politically charged before. And there was, no, there was no other reason for those three guys to walk through other than to make like a, almost like a, a statement against Barcelona at that, at that point is, is kind of how everybody interpreted it. It was insane. I've never experienced anything like that before in my life. Um, yeah. it's beyond just supporting the team on the field, man. Yep. It's, it's supporting everything that that the team and club represent yep. social, politically, economically. We don't, we don't really 
experience that here in America. Yep. Yep. And it, and, and we can get into that maybe in, in future episodes about, you know, the way that the league is set up. I, we've talked about it for years. Gary's written about it for years on the blog. I've talked about it in, in a handful of podcasts with Ted Westerfeld and, and, and Eric Stover and, and a bunch of other people, right? But it's just the way that Major League Soccer and American Soccer is set up doesn't allow for these independent identities amongst the club. So that's why we don't have, you know, these uh, these yeah these these types of rivalries, political rivalries, uh, economic socioeconomic rivalries, things like that. You know, it's it's basically kind of just like faux rivalries. You're like, hey, you know, Dallas is playing Houston. Um, but for the most part, those th- there's nothing different about those two franchises. So yeah, uh, I think the best way to describe it is just the passion. Yep. Yep. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So maybe we maybe we talk about that in another episode. I don't want to keep people here any longer because we've already covered a lot in 50 minutes. Um, yeah. That the the game that we that we analyzed is if people want to go watch Atletico um, Barca, it was from. What's today's date? December 2nd. So that was from December 1st. So if they want to go back and, and check that out, or if they want to just look up the highlights and see the, the build up to Messi's goal that we kind of broke down, they can do that. Um, anything else that we, that we didn't get to that we needed to Joey? I think that's it, man. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and do a couple screenshots and videos. I don't know if you're going to do that, but if, if people want to just connect with you and, and, and keep the conversation going, they can reach you at, Casio underscore FG on Twitter. They can find me at that Croatian guy. Uh, or if you want, if you want to write us an essay or a love letter or anything, you can always head to the blog and leave us uh, some words in the comment section. It's a good place to uh, to speak your mind if, uh, if you have something to say to us about one of these episodes. So, yeah. Uh, as always, Joey, thank you so much for your time and for for sharing your insight and, and you know helping helping people see the game just a little bit differently. Of course, man. I enjoy it. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. If you are interested in accelerating your development as a coach and learning more about possession-based soccer, you can visit 343coaching.com and sign up for our premium coaching membership program. That is where you will get access to video, audio, and ebook lessons that will help you reduce your trial and error time by showing you the methods that have been proven to work in the American soccer environment. So once again, if you are an ambitious coach and you want to start learning the tried and true methods that have already been proven to work in the American soccer environment, you can visit 343coaching.com to learn more about our coaching programs. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will catch you next time.